G'day and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast coming to you from Melbourne, Australia broadcast from the studios of 3CR your only radio left my name is Susanna Duffy in this episode of Left After Breakfast we'll hear from the Uluru Dialogue after their week of silence. We'll look at the Food Bank Hunger Report, which reveals that 3.7 million households in the country went hungry last year. That's more homes struggling to put food on the table than all the households in Sydney and Melbourne combined. And we'll catch up on some invigorating news from Iceland. But first, a bit of Australian history. Let's look back a little, listener. It's 1918, and the Allied and Central Powers are coming to the end of a deadly conflict across three continents, while hunger stalks the civilian populations of all the combatant nations. In Australia... Marmite was among the foodstuffs in short supply, and aspiring fat cat Fred Walker decided to do something about it. He brought in what he called a university smarty pants named Cyril Callister, who worked in a factory for a full year on a salty black spread that could possibly capture the hearts of our nation. Callister used leftover brewer's yeast from the Carlton United Brewery and through trial and error crafted the perfect flavour. But what to call it? The name was put to the public in 1923 and the winning entry was Vegemite. Instantly and spectacularly, it was a complete dud, a washout. But Walker went to the US and got the license for this new processed cheese from a bloke by the name of James Kraft. An excellent business decision that changed Australia forever. Walker started giving away a small jar of Vegemite with every block of cheese. And before long, the country was hooked. Fast forward a hundred years... And we still are, except perhaps for a few twisted, unnatural people out there who don't like Vegemite. Trish Kavanagh, in 1959, was the little girl who danced on top of the jar in the legendary We're Happy Little Vegemites ad, and people still introduce her that way today. Vegemite has always created happy memories for me, she said. So to me, happiness and Vegemite go together. Well, listener, happiness and Vegemite go together for me, too. It's nostalgia now, plus I like the taste of it, and I had some on my toast this very morning.
delicious bread provides the vitamin B1 your family needs daily. Be sure you put Vegemite next to the pepper and salt whenever you set the table. The no result from the referendum was deeply disappointing to many Australians, most of all to those Indigenous people who have worked patiently for years to achieve constitutional change. There are many broken hearts. These people have had to endure some of the very worst impulses at work in this country and some of the nastiest behaviours that continue to disfigure our public life. And you know, really, that's not unexceptional in the history of our country. Thomas Mayo says that he feels an emptiness in his chest one week after the result. He doesn't want to blame the Australian people for the result, noting that 5.5 million had voted yes and more than 70,000 had volunteered for the Yes campaign. Rather, he wants the coalition to think about the misinformation it spread about the referendum, calling it a wasted opportunity and a true shame. I have received a statement from the Uluru Dialogue. The name of this is A Statement for Our People and Our Country. It's an open letter, and summing up, it says, Australia is our country. We accept that the majority of non-Indigenous voting Australians have rejected recognition in the Australian Constitution. We do not for one moment accept that this country is not ours. Always was, always will be. It is the legitimacy of the non-Indigenous occupation in this country that requires recognition, not the other way around. Our sovereignty has never been ceded. I will read the full statement. 22nd of October 2023 To the Prime Minister and every member of the House of Representatives and the Senate of the Commonwealth Parliament. This is an open letter which will be circulated to the Australian media. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have observed a week of silence across Australia since the outcome of the referendum last Saturday, the 14th of October. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags have flown half-mast and we have refrained from media commentary. Even as politicians, governments, media commentators and analysts have spent a week exonerating and indeed lauding the nobility of the 60.8% of Australians who voted to reject constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the First Peoples of Australia. These are the collective insights and views of a group of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders, community members and organisations. 1. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are in shock and are grieving the result. 
we feel acutely the repudiation of our peoples and the rejection of our efforts to pursue reconciliation in good faith. That people who came to our country in only the last 235 years would reject the recognition of this continent's first people. On our sacred land which we have cared for and nurtured for more than 65,000 years, is so appalling and mean-spirited as to be absolutely unbelievable a week following. It will remain unbelievable and appalling for decades to come. We thank the 5.51 million Australians who voted yes to recognition. This represents 39.2% of Australian voters. We acknowledge the resounding yes vote in discreet and remote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. The high levels of support for yes in our communities exposes the no campaigns lies taken up by the media even in the last week of the campaign. The situation of these communities needs to be addressed sooner rather than later. Australia is our country. We accept that the majority of non-Indigenous voting Australians have rejected recognition in the Australian Constitution. We do not, for one moment, accept that this country is not ours. Always was, always will be. It is the legitimacy of the non-Indigenous occupation in this country that requires recognition, not the other way around. Our sovereignty has never been ceded. The Constitution still belongs to those who the Founding Fathers originally intended it for and remains unchanged in our exclusion. We were asked to be recognised over a decade ago. We sought to be included in a meaningful way and that's been rejected. In refusing our people's right to be heard on matters that affect us, Australia chose to make itself less liberal and less democratic. Our right to be heard continues to exist both as a democratic imperative for this nation and as our inherent right to self-determination. The country can deny the former, but not the latter. A founding document without recognition of First Peoples of this country continues the process of colonisation. It is clear that no reform of the constitution that includes our people will ever succeed. This is the bitter lesson from 14th of October. The support for the referendum collapsed from the moment Liberal and National Party leaders, Mr Dutton and Mr Little Proud, chose to oppose the Voice to Parliament proposal after more than a decade of bipartisan support. The proposal was tracking 60% support compared to 40% opposition for several years until the National and the Liberal Party's preferred wanton political damage over support for some of this country's most disadvantaged people. There was little the Yes campaign could do to countervail this. Lies in political advertising and communication were a primary feature of this campaign. We know that the No campaign was funded and resourced by conservative and international interests who have no stake or interest in the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We know this funding supported multiple no campaigns that intentionally argued in varying directions to create doubt and fear in both non-Indigenous and Indigenous communities. 
This included resurrecting scare campaigns seen during the 1990s against land rights. But the scale of deliberate disinformation and misinformation was unprecedented and it proliferated unchecked on social media, repeated in mainstream media and unleashed a tsunami of racism against our people. We know that the mainstream media failed our people, favouring a false sense of balance over facts. There has always been racism against First Nations people in Australia. It increased with multiple daily instances during the campaign and was a powerful driver for the No campaign. But this campaign went beyond just racism. If you don't know, vote no. Gave expression to ignorance and licensed the abandonment of civic responsibility on the part of many voters who voted no. This shameful victory belongs to the Institute of Public Affairs, the Centre for Independent Studies and mainstream media. Post-referendum commentaries that exculpate those who voted no were expected as the usual kind of post-election approbation of the electorate. The truth is that the majority of Australians have committed a shameful act, whether knowingly or not, and there's nothing positive to be interpreted from it. We need a truth to be told to the Australian people. We will maintain the vision of the Uluru Statement from the heart. We will continue to uphold the outcomes of the Uluru Dialogues, to which more than 1,200 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders from across the country contributed, culminating in the Uluru Statement signed by 250. It's evident that many Australians are unaware of our cultures, our histories, or the racism imbued in the Australian Constitution. That so many Australians believe that there is no race or division on race in the current Australian Constitution speaks to the need for better education on Australian history and better civics education. We have faith that the upswelling of support through this referendum has ignited a fire for many to walk with us on our journey towards justice. Our truths have been silenced for too long. We want to talk with our people and our supporters about establishing, independent of the constitutional legislation, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to take up the cause of justice for our people. Rejection of constitutional recognition will not deter us from speaking up to governments, parliaments and to the Australian people. We have an agenda for justice. We will regather in due course and develop a plan for future direction. While this moment will be etched into Australians' history forever, today we think of our children and our children's children. Our work continues as it has always done. We will continue to fight to seek justice for our people. 3CR The cost of living crisis. Well, that's not so much of a secret anymore, is it? What might shock you, well, it shocked me, is to know that 3.7 million households went hungry last year. That's more homes struggling to put food on the table than all the households in Sydney and Melbourne combined. Now, this sobering statistic comes from the Food Bank Hunger Report 2023, 
released this week, highlighting the cost of living crisis real impact on 36% of Australian households experiencing food insecurity. We're fast heading towards a reality where more than half of the population will know what food insecurity is because they're experiencing it themselves. Almost one in two Australians have felt anxious about accessing adequate food or have struggled to consistently access it. Now look, in a country where we produce enough food to feed our population three times over, this should not be happening. The report confirms that the face of hunger is changing as well, considering those experiencing food insecurity for the first time are more likely to be younger, with mid to higher incomes. More than half of food insecure households have someone in paid work, 60%, and the housing crisis only makes the problem worse. Half of all renters and a third of all mortgage holders were seen as food insecure in the past year. For 77% of these food insecure households, the previous 12 months was the first time they've experienced such pressure. Almost all of these households try to mitigate cost of living pressures by reducing their spending on food and grocery items the most likely item to be sacrificed to make ends meet. More than half said they reduced their purchasing of fresh produce and protein. Now this is going to have a lot of public health consequences in the future, isn't it? This is actually anti-poverty week, listener. You may not have realised. But seriously, Food Bank Australia is advocating the federal government to use that hunger report as a reference point in future policy settings, underpinning poverty and inequality, and to ensure that the food relief sector is adequately resourced to respond to current and future levels of demand across Australia. I hadn't realised it was so bad. I thought it might have been just me and some of my friends. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. I wanted to mention Iceland today. Yes, Iceland, where on Tuesday the 24th of October, there was a strike by women, including the Prime Minister. So schools, shops, banks and of course their famous swimming pools were all shut. Icelanders awoke to all male news teams announcing the shutdowns across the country. With scarcely any public transport, hospitals badly understaffed and hotel rooms etc. uncleaned. The strike's organisers, different trade unions, called on women and non-binary people to refuse paid and unpaid work, including chores about the household and farm. Over 90% of Iceland's workers belong to a union. Prime Minister Katrin, don't forget Icelanders don't have a surname, Prime Minister Katrin stayed home as part of the strike, and other women in the cabinet also did the same. 
Iceland has been ranked as the world's most gender-equal country 14 years in a row by the World Economic Forum, which measures pay, education, health care and other factors. But no country has achieved full equality and there does remain a gender pay gap in Iceland. The cabinet is evenly split between male and female ministers and almost half of the lawmakers in Iceland's parliament, the old thingy, are women. But while women in Iceland have broken glass ceiling to top jobs from bishops to leaders of the National Wrestling Association, the lowest paid jobs such as cleaning and childcare are still predominantly done by women. Now work like this It's essential to Iceland's tourism-dominated economy and it depends heavily on migrants who on the whole work longer hours and take home the lowest salaries. Around 22% of the female workforce is foreign-born and foreign women are of course more vulnerable. Iceland has a 40% quota for company boards, a law passed in 2010 which came into effect in 2013 This came after the global financial crisis in 2009. Now that crisis resulted in protests and demonstrations across the country and the start of a new progressive government. The new government prosecuted those involved and also concluded that a key cause of the financial crash was the male-dominated business culture Basically, Iceland's economic crisis turned out not to be such a terrible thing after all. The Conservative government was forced to resign, and a new progressive government, led by Social Democrat Johanna Sigurdorta, the world's first openly gay premier, took over. Iceland dealt with the crash by prosecuting those responsible, holding banks accountable, It also minimised and in some cases forgave individual household debts completely. They also came to the rather radical conclusion (laughs) that a male-dominated economy and business culture were part of what led to the crash in the first place. In response, Iceland developed a legislation that ensured companies' boards were composed of at least 40% women and incorporated what they called feminine values into the mainly male spheres of private equity, wealth management and corporate advice. So Iceland put in five core feminine values. I'm very impressed with these feminist values. The first one is risk awareness. We will not invest in things we don't understand. Two, profit with principles. We want a wider definition so it's not just economic profit, but a positive social and environmental impact. Three, emotional capital. When we invest, we do an emotional due diligence. We check on the company. We look at the people and whether the corporate culture is an asset or a liability. Four, straight talking. We believe the language of finance should be accessible and not part of the alienating nature of banking culture. Five, independence. We want to see women increasingly financially independent. 
because with that comes the greatest freedom to be who you want to be. Throughout all of this, the new government made maintaining Iceland's extensive welfare system a priority, protecting the middle and working classes well above the rich. The country learned the consequences of right-wing privatisation policies and responded accordingly. Also contributing to Iceland's status is its world-leading paid parental leave and childcare system. In Iceland, both parents and mothers and fathers or whatever are given four weeks of paid parental leave, paid at their replacement wage, with provisions adjusted for single parents. Families are then offered an additional two months of paid leave, which they can determine how to split. How utterly sensible! Overall, and as this week's strike showed, almost 50 years since their first and most famous women's strike, Iceland won't stop at good enough, or even best globally. It will continue to push to completely close its gender gap. And I must remark here on the strike in 1975, also on the same date. October the 24th, and the women in Iceland observed what was called, please have patience with me, listener, the Women's Day Off. In that strike, it was estimated that almost 95% of women in Iceland took the day off. What was so frightening about it, really? to all Icelanders, was that they had not realised that the power stations were staffed mainly by women. And in 1976, Iceland passed a law guaranteeing equal rights, irrespective of gender. Not a bad place, eh, Iceland, if you have to live somewhere in this planet. And if you don't mind the weather... Then again, there are plenty of hot pools around you. They run their country very well indeed, and it's worthwhile looking at those five feminine core values for businesses. A pretty damn good idea. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the ride. See you next week. Same time, same place. Until then, it's Cheerio and Chow from Left After Breakfast. And I leave you with a little melody from Iceland. <laughs>